Well, I'd just like to add my welcome to uh, that of the worship team and others who have welcomed you here today, and especially to those of you who are new or maybe you are um, checking out church or you're new to Jesus, I'm really glad you're here on this beautiful um, summer Sunday morning. And again, just don't, don't forget, the prayer room's open. There are amazing people there that can pray with you. Well, we're journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and Luke presents quite a chronological and detailed rendering of the life of Jesus Christ. We've been journeying through Luke. We're in chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, we're just going to conclude the last story in chapter 10 today. And, um, but what I'd like us to think about, we're going we're gonna to pray together, but I'd really like us to think about why does Luke include this story in his, in his telling of Jesus' life in his gospel? And so that question I just wanted at the forefront of your minds as we read together. But before we do, um, let's pray and invite Jesus once again into this space. God, thank you so much that we can lift our eyes to you. Thank you, God, that even this time in this space allows us to reorient our lives, uh, to focus on you. We lift our eyes to you. We lift our ears to you and the teaching that you would have us hear from, the, from your scripture, from your word to us. Thank you, God. Um, we open our hearts. And thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're starting in Luke 10, uh, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, for those of you who have been around church or know your Bible, this might be a familiar story, but for others of you, it may be new, and that's, that's good too. The question I asked at the outset was, why did Luke capture this interchange in his gospel? I mean, there were many things that Jesus did and said, miracles and uh, things like that. But why this, this dialogue between himself, between Jesus and two sisters? Well, I think there's a very important point to be made, and I'm sure you, sure you kind of were picking up on that as we read this morning. And it's the phrase that Jesus says to Martha a short phrase. He says, few things are needed, or indeed only one. Maybe your Bible translation, as most renderings do, say, but one thing is necessary. Or I really like, you know, a, a literal translation, kind of word for word out of the Greek there. It says, there is need of only one thing. Jesus is telling Martha and Mary, there is need of only one thing. Well, I mean, if your boss or maybe um, your parent, if, you, if you're a, a student here, or your professor says, okay, I want you to focus on this. This is the one thing I want you to accomplish. Do this one thing. I suppose you would sit up and take notice and carry that out. And here's Jesus actually identifying the one thing that's needed. But he doesn't explicitly put it into words, does he? We pick up from this uh, 
seen what the one thing is. But we're wired for that. We want to know, what's the one thing? What's, what's the purpose? What's the destination? Um, how can I discover or explore the one thing? We're kind of drawn to that kind of discovery. And in literature, this is known as the quest narrative. You may be thinking of many well-known fables or stories that use this quest narrative to capture us. You might be thinking of The Hobbit and Bilbo's search for the Arkenstone, or maybe Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, and she's on a journey. Maybe Captain Ahab in Moby Dick or Ulysses in the Odyssey. All these stories are built around one thing that drives them against all odds. And these stories are compelling, aren't they? I mean, there's a reason why The Purpose Driven Life was a bestseller, a massive bestseller for, for years by people of faith and not. Because a key question that we often at maybe ask ourselves if we slow down long enough to think about it or we see it in, um, you know, in books and, and articles and magazines, and it, this key question is, what matters most? What am I living for? And in fact, would someone looking from the outside, looking at my life, be able to identify by my actions what I'm pursuing? Do we slow down enough to ask? Sometimes it's not until there's a tragedy or an illness or an end of life that we actually do stop and say, you know, what matters most? What is the one thing? Well, the quest narrative finds its origin in the scriptures, and often Jesus uses metaphors to, to talk about the one thing, right? In Matthew 13, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what is the one thing that Mary is pursuing at all costs and that Jesus commends her for? It's to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to his voice, to learn of him, to be his apprentice. Sounds simple, right? Well, in one sense, it's not complicated. But is it easy? I don't think it was for Mary and Martha, and not for us either in our day and time. So that's the one thing. But there are some things we need to notice about Jesus' teaching here and about the setting and the culture at the time so that we really capture this one thing. Martha opened her home to him. Now Bethany, where Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus lived, um, was en route from Galilee to Jerusalem. So Jesus would have traveled here many, this way many times. And he often stopped at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home for maybe a retreat, some hospitality, a meal. John 11 records that Jesus loved these friends. Martha its scholars believe, and even her siblings were single, and Martha was the um, head of the household. So it was kind of unusual for Jesus to be spending lots of time and invited into this household. That wouldn't have been the cultural norm at the time for a well-respected and popular rabbi. As well, this is not a story that just includes three characters. Now, often if we're um, thinking of pictures about this scene, or maybe we have pictures in our mind, or pictures that have been painted. We'll see a scene, as um, is shown here by Johannes Vermeer, of, of Mary literally sitting at Jesus' feet and looking up at him intently or adoringly, and Martha scolding over Jesus' shoulder. 
But this isn't entirely accurate. See, Jesus would have been seated in a place of prominence in Martha's home, but the room would have been filled with his disciples, other followers, primarily men, in fact, all men, and men from the community. So Mary would have been at the side, or at best at the back, you know, trying to take it all in and listen in. This is not a story about one woman who's serving and sweating it out in the kitchen and another woman who's just sitting in blissful peace. Not about contrasting activity and contemplation. It's often presented that way. I asked my daughter, Abby, I said, I'm preaching on this. And, she, and, she, and I said, what, do you, what comes to mind? And she said, oh, that's easy. She said, decide who you're like. Are you Mary or Martha? I mean, we just pit one against another, she said. And of course, Mary's the hero and always comes out on top. Well, that's how it's often presented. One theologian writes, to read this episode as a commendation of contemplative, contemplative life over and against active life is to allegorize it beyond recognition and to introduce a distinction that was born only of later preoccupation. So action and contemplation are both equally held up in scripture. This is not also a story primarily about women for women. I mean, it doesn't take long in looking at this, you know, researching this story, you'll come across articles like five lessons women can learn from Mary and Martha. Like I said, there were probably far more men in this scene than just women. And it's not about teaching that women can just get too busy keeping up a home. But this story is often reduced to worry about being the perfect hostess. So it becomes the resource for many devotionals for women, such as Made Like Martha, Good News for the Woman Who Gets Things Done, or Having a Martha Home the Merry Way, 31 Days to a Clean House and a Satisfied Soul. <laughs> I am not kidding. This was 2018 and 2016, right? Go back further and it's even scarier. But we're missing the point. We're missing the point if we use biblical stories about women to satisfy a focus on being domestic or keeping house as a Christian woman's primary calling. A clean house is not the one thing that's needed that Jesus identifies. So what is? Being a disciple of Jesus, men and women alike, pursuing apprenticeship to him. That's the quest. What about the characters? Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Like I said, this sounds serene and beautiful. Mary enraptured right at Jesus' feet. But there were massive obstacles that could have prevented Mary from seeking the one thing that Jesus commends her for. Why? Because the phrase, to sit at the feet of Jesus or at the feet of a rabbi, meant to be his disciple. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul um, comments on this. The Apostle Paul, a Jew, was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So he, Paul was apprenticed to Gamaliel. To sit at the feet of a rabbi denotes learning with the purpose of one day becoming a teacher yourself. However, women were forbidden to learn the Torah. Rabbi Eliezer at the time writes, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Girls stayed home. They were generally illiterate while boys went to school. Unless one might think that it's just ancient rabbinical laws that taught women were not suited to this kind of learning, author Beth Allison Barr uh, presents that into the, even into the 1700s, philosophers, especially uh, educate, uh, speaking on education, they believed that women did not possess the capacity for advanced learning. 
In fact, early modern science uh, looked at the physique of women compared to men, and women were smaller and weaker, had smaller heads, therefore they had smaller brains, which were weaker and more inadequate. In uh, 1871, Darwin proposed that most desirable evolutionary traits were transmitted more fully to men than to females, and so men would naturally be superior to women. Which might explain why, just a couple years ago, respected Bible teacher and author Beth Moore was told in no uncertain terms by a very well-known pastor in California to, in, in, in two words, go home, meaning she did not belong in the theological arena with men. And I'm old enough to remember the seminary days when the question was asked, why are we graduating women from seminary if they can't be pastors or teach the Bible? See, just as Jesus redefined family in the kingdom of God, he also radically challenged cultural norms of discipleship in his interactions with men and women both. And unless we understand this story in the assumed context of it's better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman, we're in danger of missing quite a lot. See, homes in the Middle East uh, first century had well-defined women's spaces and men's spaces. And women only crossed over to the men's space to, um, to serve the men and then retreated. About eight or 10 years ago, we hosted through home, a homestay program um, two brothers from Saudi Arabia. And of course, we got to know them so well, we were mom and dad to them, and we would FaceTime with their family, including their mom and sisters. But it wasn't unless I was home alone, or at least in a room with the door shut where my husband and son could not you know, walk, it, walk into the, see the screen, that they would take their device and go to the women's side of the house and take off their head coverings and we could have these really fun exchanges face to face. That's the way it was. So Mary crossed a cultural boundary in her home and in society to sit down with the men. That was scandalous, but she wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. Mary also faced her sister's disapproval. So scholars like N.T. Wright and uh, a Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who I've really come to appreciate in, in unpacking this story, he's a Middle Eastern scholar of the New Testament. He taught in Beirut, Jerusalem, and I think at Princeton. He died recently. But he says that it wasn't just the workload that had Martha so upset. It was also that she was anxious and upset that her sister had left the women's quarters and was uh, sitting with the men and possibly damaging her reputation in that town. Now, about three years ago, um, myself and my husband and Rebecca, who leads our Syrian friends team, um, we were invited by Hassan, who is the, um, the head of the, the, the father, the dad of the first family that, we, um, that came from Syria five years ago. Um, anyway, we were invited to the mosque and uh, the mosque in Langley. Maybe you didn't know there was one, but um, we had to, Rebecca and I, anyway, had to get uh, ready, and so I think there's a picture of me get, um, there prepared to go to the mosque, and we walked there, and um, uh, all the men entered into this large space, like maybe not as big as this room, but quite large, and then they were lined up in rows, and the imam stood at the front, but the women, and there were only a few of us, were escorted up a back stairs, and um, we were in a balcony that was really hot, and, and there was a big wall um, so that we couldn't see uh, the, 
anyone in the room below. And also, uh, but just the very, very top of the imam's head. And we could hear, we could hear sort of what he was saying. Um, and we were not allowed to approach the wall or look over. Um, and also all the kids were with us. So it was kind of distracting. And I thought as I, as I was um, reading this story today, I thought, uh, what if Rebecca would have just said, okay, I'm done with this, and gone down the stairs and plunked herself like right between Rob and Hassan in, in the room with the men. Well, Rebecca would never have done that, for one thing. Um, it would have been rude. We were the guests, and Re Rebecca's very respectful of, of um, you know, the, the expectations. Um, Hassan and his family are our friends. So she never would have done that. But thinking about that scene, I thought, that's kind of similar to what Mary did. And, you know, with our 21st century minds, we see nothing inappropriate when we read this story. But in Jesus' time, it was unthinkable for women to be in the presence of men for an extended period of time or to talk to them outside of family. Uh, think about the, the temple in Jerusalem. There was a women's court, and, then the, and women were not allowed into the uh, uh, more inner space where the men were. The words of Rabbi Yohanan of Jerusalem at this time says, he that talks too much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at the last will inherit Gehenna, meaning in danger of hell. This was wise and accepted advice at the time, but Mary did not let these cultural expectations and limitations stop her. Here's a question for us. What current assumptions or just norms or things that are just acceptable or we're so used to, what, what things keep us from pursuing the one thing? Where, where must we like, think about deliberately going against the tide of culture to seek God in his presence? Well, it helps to kind of identify what that is. The other day I was down in Bellingham and I walked in a Fred Meyer and there was a Starbucks um, placard, sandwich board, right in front of me. And it said, chase happy things. And I thought, I had to take a picture of it because I was like, well, that's it. Isn't that what it's all about? We, we chase, I mean, our culture tells us to do this. The sign is telling us to do this. And, and yet, even um, Susanna Nusinen, who's a happyologist, which means she's a happy coach, she takes issue with this sign because she says that it's the chase, the pursuit, the quest for happiness that's actually making people unhappy, anxious, and overwhelmed. Because when happiness becomes the one thing, she says, and she uses that term, we have to feel happy all the time. So we compare ourselves to others and it leaves us always wanting more because there's no clear endpoint to that search Will you be happy and satisfied when you have that job or build that career or own your own business or get that degree or can have that kind of home or that kind of car or that kind of vacation or that kind of retirement? Do we chase happiness for other people? Are we so intent on keeping our kids happy and comfortable and making sure that they have and can experience everything or our family members, or our adult children, or whatever it is, we're chasing happiness for others. How about for ourselves, being liked, you know, being make sure we're noticed on social media? 
See, these things can become obstacles. They can become cultural expectations that just sweep us along. And it takes courage to put Jesus first in our schedules, in our families, in our friendships. We're afraid of disappointing people. In our value systems, when, they, when that rubs up against coworkers and other people's beliefs. In our finances. Sometimes it means saying no to good things. Pursuing God is a countercultural radical choice in our day and age, and it will impact your choices and mine. It did for Mary. But she pushed through that in her quest. Chasing a life with God brings deep contentment and deep joy. We know that. But what obstacles stand in your way? What about Martha? Well, I've often talked to women who feel justifiably that Martha gets a bad rap. Who wouldn't resent being saddled with all the work? Didn't Jesus teach, you know, service to others? Martha opened her home. She was practicing hospitality. I mean, last week you heard Kevin uh, preach on the Good Samaritan, and Jesus' words at the end of that were what? Go and do likewise, right? So Jesus is not criticizing Martha here, but instead he's offering her an invitation, an invitation into something better, to know him better, because the one thing that matters more than serving and ministry and being busy for God is actually spending time with him. Jesus says, love God, love others. One flows out of the other. But verse 39, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now this word distracted is interesting, perispado, it means pulled away, drawn away, encumbered by many things. So there's this huge contrast here, but Martha's busy with the many things and distracted and pulled away from the one thing. That can happen to us too, I can relate. So anyone who knows me, true confessions, my kids to my coworkers know that I can have 10 things or more on the go at the same time. And it doesn't mean I'm doing them all well, by any means, but I, I just am busy. I, I have trouble sitting, I have trouble stopping, I have trouble letting go of the task, I have trouble setting my to-do list aside. So for me, carving out time in the morning is a discipline. It's not where I just gravitate automatically. It's a discipline that often leads to always great reward, but it's a discipline. I have to carve out time to be quiet. My soul needs it. My, my brain needs it. I need, to, I need to spend time in the Lord's presence. I have an apprentice group that meets weekly before work. And I think, I don't have time. It's too early. I want to sleep. <laughs> like, no, they hold me accountable. I want to be, um, you know, I want to pursue the one thing and do that with others as well. My brain's wired for distraction. You know, the busyness, the, the commotion, the noise, the notifications, the incessant urgent news, the responsibilities. It's all coming at us. And on top of that, we want to serve. We want to be like Martha. We are encouraged to do that. We want to love our neighbor. But we can do all sorts of things for God and still feel very distant from him or very angry, anxious, and upset at others. Verse 40, Martha came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come help me. See, Martha's pulled away. She loses her focus, and relationships are strained. Why am I doing this by myself? There's this inner turmoil, and we become irritated with others because they're not living up to our standards. 
From the text, it doesn't seem to imply that Martha didn't help at all, it's Mar uh, that Mary didn't help at all. Martha says that Mary left her to do the work. So they were probably working side by side in the kitchen, you know, doing whatever, making baklava or something. And Mary's cracking the nuts and she realizes Jesus is in the other room. What am I doing? And she drops everything and goes to be with Jesus. But Martha, on the other hand, seems to have lost focus about who she was doing it all for. She feels abandoned and taken advantage of. Plus, Mary's sitting with the men. What will the neighbors think? So she goes to Jesus and she blames him because Jesus is actually the one that's allowing and giving permission to Mary to sit there and learn. And Martha's like, look, I'm doing this all for you. I'm doing this all for you and your disciples. Does that sound familiar? But this is a really important thing to get in this scene. Jesus loves Martha. He loves her. So in verse 41, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Now, name repetition in scripture is a rarity. We don't see it often. And what this is not is exasperation. It's not, Martha, Martha, not at all. Name repetition in scripture denotes emphasis, a divine encounter, intense emotion. Uh, you see it, uh, Moses at the burning bush when God speaks to him, Moses, Moses. And a couple other times, but also Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, intense emotion. So Jesus sees Martha. He sees her distraction. He sees her fear. He sees her anxiety. And he loves her. Picture Jesus seeing you in your situation, in your distraction, in your uh, anxiety about whatever that might be. You know, the economy. I mean, we just traded two years of anxiety about COVID for the economy, inflation, and mortgage rates, and all that. And Jesus sees you and he says your name. Martha, Martha, I want you to be with me. Just bring it all to me. The meal can wait. Verse 42, Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. Now these words in an all-male dominated society where women had few rights would have been shocking to the men in the room. It will not be taken away from her. And startling to Martha too, who fully expected Jesus to shoo Mary back into the kitchen. And Jesus had every opportunity to do that, but he didn't. He invited her to stay. And he invites you to stay and me to stay. Jesus defends the right of every man and every woman to be his disciple. Jesus wants Martha's company more than he wants her lavish meal. And Jesus wants your company more than he wants whatever is distracting you, whatever is pulling you away. Maybe your favorite sports team or your golf game or your exercise regimen or your worry or your anxiety or your need to pull it all together for your family, whatever it is, Jesus wants your company more than that. And the one thing he knows Martha is in need of is spiritual food. So it's interesting, This uh, the literal... Literal, literal translation here says Mary chose the better portion. Portion in scripture denotes food and 
spiritual food. It's a reference to a portion of food. Psalm 119 says, you are my portion, Lord. I have promised to obey your words. You're my nourishment. You're my sustenance. You're everything I need. I think Martha accepted Jesus' invitation that day to be his apprentice. And why do I think that? Well, later on, the Apostle John records that Martha met um, Jesus at the burial place of her brother Lazarus, who had unexpectedly died. And in that interchange with Jesus, she makes one of the most profound confess confessions in Scripture. She says, declares Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Mary got it. Mary understood, even before Jesus' disciples and apostles got there, she knew she was his apprentice. Then in the week before Jesus' death, Martha is again serving, and her once-dead brother is reclining at the table with Jesus, and their sibling Mary comes in and pours this really expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet. But Martha doesn't protest. She doesn't scold at all. I think they continue to serve and worship Jesus in their unique ways. So here's a question for all of us. What would define the quest narrative in your life? What are you pursuing? What do you long for deep down? What do you crave? Well, a well-known book, uh, it's by James K.A. Smith, says it's entitled, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And Smith says that who and what we worship will fundamentally shape our hearts. He says, often we're not even aware of how culture is shaping us and pushing us to love things other than the one for whom we were made. He makes a very good point of saying, worship is the thing that incubates our loves and longings towards the things of God. Did you catch that? Worship is the thing that incubates our loves and longings towards the things of God. We experienced that this morning already. And worship, Smith says, in a local church community of believers is at the heart of apprenticeship to Jesus. We will be shaped most by what we love most. So a life of apprenticeship to Jesus, it's not complicated, but it won't happen by accident. And it's not a destination that we're, we're there. No, this is, this is daily choices, daily desiring to be with Jesus. So practically, I can ask myself these things. What if I went to bed a little earlier? Or what if I got up a little earlier? What if I watched um, one less episode? Or maybe not at all. Or what if I stopped just looking up stuff on my phone or on Marketplace or whatever? What about checking emails and social media at all hours? What if you asked a few people to join an apprentice group apprenticeship group with you so that you journeyed um, in life with Jesus with others or you joined life together in the fall made room for that in your schedule with the intent of doing life with Jesus in community what about the habit to be part of the gathered church on Sunday you're here it's amazing but that's a place setter that is a weekly rhythm to stop and kind of recalibrate my life around what I know is most important. What I want to pursue, which is, which is the one thing. But I also want to say this. It's not just all about willpower. I must spend more time with God. That won't last very long. It just won't. We won't pursue the one thing unless we truly believe that being with Jesus 
is the best thing. That being with Jesus really does order my days. That being with Jesus helps transform me by his word, by his Holy Spirit, into the person that I really know I want to be in my relationship with others. That being with Jesus fills me up. It adjusts my attitude and my perspective so that when I do serve, I'm not doing it out of anger or resentment or self-pity. So again, what's the quest narrative that's shaping your life? Maybe you're here and you're listening to Jesus and you're like, yes, I want a life apprentice to Jesus, but I struggle. I feel like I'm always blowing it and falling off the wagon and Jesus is disappointed in me and I feel so distant from him and where do I start? I get it. I know I've been there many times. I am there many times. But listen, do you remember how much he loved Martha? How much Jesus loves the one who's distracted and pulled away. And why such love? Because in truth, God, God is the architect and the initiator of the greatest quest narrative of all time. From the beginning, he loved us. We are his one thing. He put into motion the greatest quest of all time, and that was to rescue humanity, you and me. Why? Because we are his pearl of great price. Because he's like that merchant who went out seeking and found us and gave his very life to purchase us for himself because we're his treasure. We are his one. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, before we gave God a thought, Christ died for us. That's the place we all start. It's at the cross. It's that Jesus' love is demonstrated as he gave his life and rose again. That's his heart for us in this story. And he will never send us away from his presence. There is no barrier, no obstacle too high that his love does not reach us. So whether you feel drawn to him for the first time this morning and you are thinking and, and, and wanting in your heart to say yes to Jesus, invite him in. He longs to be with you. Or maybe it's the hundredth time and you're saying, Jesus, I, I wanna sit at your feet. I wanna learn from you. I wanna be in your presence. He's right here. Pray with someone this morning. And let's pray together before we worship once more. Father, thank you so much that in this short story, you demonstrate your heart for us, just as you demonstrated for Mary and Martha. God, thank you that we can uh, see your heart for us, that there is one thing that our hearts desire, and that is to be with you, that you would be our purpose and the one that we run to. God, help us to even identify the things that are pulling us away, that are distracting us, the, thing that are, the things that are obstacles. And God, with your help and by your Holy Spirit, to choose to follow you, to choose to be with you every day. God, help us to order our days so that we might know you. Thank you for your deep, deep love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.